Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. May that be so. Well, good morning. It is so good to be back. I had to remember how to do everything, but I want to thank the men who uh, stood in my place and gave me a little time to kind of go do some visit, visiting the family and then just kind of recouping and then um, putting together what we're going to be doing this fall. Luke chapter 21 is where we're going to be today. Prophecies, predictions, prognoscators, palm readers, for centuries, people have desired to know the future and sought out those who proclaim to be able to do so. For a small fee, of course, I can tell you what your future holds. At one time, there was an abundance of tabloid magazines and newspapers that offered all types of forecasts and fortunes. I don't even know if they exist anymore. Some of you might remember the National Enquirer, the Globe, Star Magazine, and many others that had all these astrologers and others who would every, you know, every uh, new year would make predictions for the year. Throughout history, many individuals have gained fame for their predictions of the future, often through various means such as astrology, divination, prophecy, or intuition. People such as Nostradamus, probably one of the most famous uh, uh, in the Renaissance time. Uh, Jean Dixon, who was kind of to the stars, an astrologer to the stars. Rasputin, a very mysterious man uh, during the uh, Russian Revolution, as well as Paul the octopus. How many of you have heard of Paul Octopus? You've never heard of Paul the octopus? He correctly, this octopus, correctly predicted the outcome of the matches in the 2010 World Cup football or soccer matches. Paul the octo- octopus. Even today, there is no shortage of those who boldly and confidently proclaim to predict the future for a whole host of reasons. Economic, you have the Wall Street, you have stocks, bonds, inflation, everything like that is trying. What will the future hold? Inflation, recession, uh, there's those who who make predictions globally, climate change, uh, there's going to be famines, there's going to be wars. Politically, what's going to happen in the next election? We're seeing forecasts and predictions already. And even culturally, what are the clothing styles going to be like for the winter, for the summer, so on and so forth? How about entertainment and styles? What is it that people want? Many times these predictions are used for information and planning, but also for manipulation and alarmism. Yet we know that there is one who can predict the future accurately, God, Yahweh. So today we're looking at Luke chapter 21, 5 through 19, as Jesus gives some dire warnings and predictions. And just as a quick review, as we know, we're here in the last week of Jesus' life here on, on, on earth before he goes to the cross. His ad- divine appointment at Calvary as he was sent by God to die for us. And here we've seen this last week. He went into, um, excuse me, he went into Jerusalem triumphantly riding on the donkey. People are saying, blessed is he, blessed is he, the son of David comes in the name of the Lord. We see Jesus then clearing out the temple and then the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are trying to entrap him. They find themselves not able to do so for every question they asked. He silenced him with his wisdom and his answers. So now we find it's Tuesday, and Jesus is wanting to spend some time with his disciples, preparing them for the day that he's going to die. In several days, he's going to be betrayed, arrested, crucified, and then dead. And so what we need to see here is as he's trying, he's trying to spend some time, some quality time, teaching them, preparing them for what's about to happen. So in that, we come to Luke chapter 21. As I said, it's Tuesday. It's two days before his betrayal and his arrest. They're sitting at the temple, and the Jew disciples ask him a question that leads him to share what the future holds. So Luke 21, verses 5 through 6, I believe, are going to be here on the monitor. Again, I encourage you to bring your Bibles. If you do not have one, love to give one to you at the end of the service. In verses 5 through 6, we read this. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, 
As for these things that you see, speaking of the stones, the temple, the day will come where there will be not left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So, Father, give us wisdom as we go back to the pages of Luke. And we thank you for his diligent in putting together this orderly account of eyewitness testimonies of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, written with the Holy Spirit. Father, this is for our profit today. So give us wisdom, discernment, how we consider how these ancient words apply to us today, how we interpret them correctly as we observe what, what uh, the Holy Spirit wants us to understand. Lord, that you may be glorified and for our good in all that we do. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, Jesus and the disciples had been spending the day in the temple, answering questions from the religious leaders, the political leaders, and everyone else who's coming by. He's, and they're observing the offerings. Remember we talked about how the widow came and gave her two mites? And he's driving out those who are misusing him. Remember he, he drove out the money changers, those who were manipulating and stealing from the people. The children of Israel were very proud of that temple. And it was a source of hope for them. It was a place where Yahweh promised to meet with them and accept their sacrifice and worship. However, by the time that we come here to our story, God has abandoned that temple. Now, the first temple, the one that was built by King Solomon, had been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So over 500 years prior, that first temple had been destroyed. In the temple of the New Testament that Jesus' time, this was known as the second temple that was began by Ezra and Nehemiah after the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And it was commonly known, though, as Herod's temple. Herod began to write it, or began to build it in 20 BC, and it towered 15 stories high, following the floor dimensions of the former temple in the holy place and most holy place. The outer courts surrounded the temple. They were not completed until 80 years later in 64 AD. So for 80 years, this temple was being rebuilt. This is the temple that the disciples and Jesus are sitting by and looking at. Pastor John MacArthur writes in his commentary, and you'll see this here, at the time of Jesus' ministry, the temple was one of the most impressive structures in the world. It was made of massive blocks of stone bedecked with gold or, or, uh, ornamentation. Some of the stones in the temple measured 40 feet by 12 by 12. We're talking humongous. And they were expertly quarried to fit perfectly against one another. The, temples, uh, the temple buildings were made of gleaming white marble and the whole eastern wall of the large main structure was covered with gold plates that reflected the morning sun, making a spectacle that was visible for miles. So this is seen. Now remember, Jerusalem set on a, a hill so anyone coming to Jerusalem from all sides would walk up and, and here was that temple reflecting off the sun. It would be a, a source of hope. It would be a source of beauty. They were very uh, prideful and very uh, uh, loved their temple. And while discussing the beauty of that temple, Jesus here makes a shocking statement indicating that one day that very temple that has taken 80 years to build with stones 40 by 12 by 12 feet, he says one day they will all come tumbling down. Not one stone will be left on another. Now think of that. What kind of force can move a, a, a stone that's 40 feet by 12 by 12? We are talking something that would take, uh, in our day, we might take a, you know, a bulldozer to it or whatever, but even then, that would probably take some time. And we're talking about the whole temple. This is shocking to them. They, they could not comprehend either what he was saying or why was he saying this? Why would the temple be destroyed? Thomas Schreiner notes that while the people are exclaiming over the exquisite beauty of the temple, Jesus is predicting a day in the, that a day is coming in which it will be leveled to the ground. Of course, this surprised the disciples 
who respond by asking Jesus two questions. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next two weeks in verse 7. Look at verse 7. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Two simple questions. They want to know when this event will happen and what should they be looking for? What is the sign that it's about to be happening? Maybe they thought they could stop it, they could prevent it, they could do something, but they want to know, well, when is this going to happen and how can we tell it's about to happen? And this is going to be a normal reaction. Interesting, though, they do not ask why. I mean, I think that would be my first question, but they don't ask why it would happen. They just ask when And what's the sign of it? Of course, you and I learned that the destruction of the temple was actually God's judgment against Israel, just as it was 500 years prior to this. The rejection of the Messiah, the rejection of his message, the rejection of his ministry will lead to devastation or devastating national loss for Israel. Now, in chapter 21, just as we look at the the whole chapter, Jesus is going to answer their two questions by predicting the following four things. One, the destruction of the temple. We're going to look at that today. Uh, Continuing wars, conflicts, natural disasters, and persecutions. Number three, the the destruction of Jerusalem itself. God is not just going to destroy the temple, but he's going to destroy the whole city, the whole nation. And then number four, the return of the king, Jesus, in power and great glory. Today, you and I are going to consider and focus on five warnings and predictions of the first two from our passage today. So with that first, what we're going to see is the first warning and prediction is the warning is the reception and deception of false teachers. In other words, Israel is going to be receiving and being deceived by false teachers. Look at verse, uh, look at verse, I think, verse 8. Jesus says, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. What does he say? Do not go after them. The Jewish historian Josephus mentions five messiahs just in his time between the time of Jesus and 70 AD. There were five men who proclaimed to be the messiahs. Today, you and I are reminded of those who have made the same type of declaration. They are either Jesus, the reincarnation of Jesus, or they are the Messiah themselves. People like David Koresh, you might remember him. He was the leader of the Branch uh, Branch Davidians. They broke away from the Seventh Day of Venice. He claimed to be the Lamb of God and a prophet. Of course, many of you know the FBI uh, invaded and many died, including children, in taking that, that cult down. Jim Jones, the one about don't drink the Kool-Aid, where he then, uh, uh, he had a religious cult known uh, for the Jonestown Massacre in 1978. He proclaimed himself as a Messiah. Marshall Applewhite, you may not know him. Uh, Some of you might, but he was the co-leader of the Heaven's Gate religious cult. They believed in UFOs and aliens, and 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 they did a mass suicide to reach a higher plane back in the 80s or 90s, I think. I can't remember exactly when. He also claimed to be a messianic figure. And then Sun Moon, the founder of the Unification Church, what you and I normally called the Moonies, he believed that he was the second coming of Christ, the Messiah. So there are many over the, the time of history that has said, I am he. Come, follow me. But Jesus says, do not receive them. Do not be deceived by these, I am not them, or they are not me. So the first was the reception and deception of false teachers. He says, this is going to happen before the temple falls. Secondly, Jesus warns of continuing wars and conflicts. Look at verse 9. He says, and when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. It's not like it's a war is going to end everything at one time. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In Matthew 24, verse 8, Jesus likens this birth pangs to war, conflict, famines, all these things that we're experiencing as 
birth pains. Uh, most mothers here that have given birth knows that there are pains that come before giving birth. And many times you think, well, is it come? Is it time? Is it time? And you go to the hospital maybe and they say, nope, it's not yet. It makes you think that it's time. The birth pains are there. But you and I, what we have to understand is you and I are living in the time of the birth pains. A painful time. A time of suffering. The definition of wars and conflicts can vary depending on who's counting and who is involved. But just since the year 2000, so 23 years, we have had the Afghanistan War, the Iraq War, the Syrian Civil War, the South Sudan Civil War, the Ukraine conflict. And I just picked out four or five of them real quickly. John Lennon might like to imagine a world with no war or conflicts. However, Jesus warns that they will continue as long as sin rules the world. It's so uh, disheartening sometimes when politicians, I can get rid of the forever wars. I can stop the conflicts. They're just false messiahs, believing in themselves and their own power that they can stop that which is really, in the end, is inevitable. He encourages disciples. By the way, that's not to say that we should pursue peace. We should pursue peace, but not be surprised. He encourages disciples to not let this reality terrify them or cause them anxiety. And this is what the world likes to do. They like to keep you alarmed. They like to fill you with anxiety and panic. He also warns them not to seek or speculate ahead when the end will come. We used to call this newspaper eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last times. It's like, oh, there's this war, then Christ must be coming back. Oh, this is happening. We might have a lot of hurricanes and, and tornadoes, so Christ must be coming back. Which is true. Jesus' return is much sooner than when I began speaking this morning. However, these birth pains are part of the world's suffering. Thirdly, Jesus warns that natural disasters will be the norm. And it's to be expected in this sin-wrecked world. In verse 11, he says, There will be earth, great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. It's popular today and politically expedient to alarm the masses by eliciting fears about climate change, hurricanes, tornadoes, Forest fires, they all are getting stronger and more frequent due to the rising temperatures of the planet. Of course, those of us who are old enough remember population scares and the warnings of global cooling in the 60s and the 70s. Jesus warns that these are all part of the natural world's infection from sin. These things are natural. It seems that Jesus may be warning, warning them about the fears of aliens and other planetary phenomena, such as meteor debris and cosmic wonders that they could not understand or describe because they just didn't have the words and the knowledge as of yet. Scripture points out that even cre the creation itself groans and longs for that day of redemption. We cannot escape these events. We can only limit their destruction. Fourthly, the disciples were warned about the upcoming prediction or persecutions for the cause of Christ. Look at verse 12. And before all this, Jesus says, he predicts and warns the disciples that they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Now, contrary to many preachers and churches today, following Jesus is not a picnic in the park where every day is a Friday and Jesus will give you every desire of your heart. Jesus is pointing out to them that they should expect persecution to come from both religious and political leaders. We're seeing this today with the response from both of those groups during the COVID when churches and pastors refused to stop meeting for worship, where churches and political leaders uh, combated against them and tried to derain them, and some arrested them, put uh, fences around their churches, locked their doors. We see it regarding LGBT issues and the conflicts today over parental rights. 
<coughs> One of the things I've been warning you about, uh, the government just signed here in California a new law that says that they can a judge can take into account what, what your LGBT gender philosophy is when it comes to the raising and custody of your children. Our witness to the identity of Christ and the truthfulness of God's word is going to bring us into direct conflict with those who reject both God's word and God. We're going to pray a price for that stand. Lastly, Jesus warns his disciples that they will suffer portrayal from the closest to them. Look at verse 16. He says, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. As some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. This is probably the saddest one of all. Jesus is warning and predicting that those closest to you, the ones that you love, are going to betray you, are going to turn you in, are going to want to see you suffer and be persecuted. This prediction covers persecution from family and friends. This one cuts to the core. Many of us know family and friends who are suffering from lost relationships because of their faith in Christ. We had some here. They lost relationship with their children when they followed Christ, when the parents decided to follow Christ. Kids, I can't have anything to do with you. It is hard to imagine that the ones that we love would stoop but betray us. But we need to remember that even Jesus was betrayed by a kiss from a close friend. Even today, the culture, now listen to this. This is, this is me editorializing a little bit. Even today, the culture is prepping your children to accept this type of behavior. If my parents do not affirm my gender dysphoria, I can tell my teacher or and then they can take me out of that home. My parents are not wearing masks. My parents are not doing this. They are prepping your children to be against you. You need to understand this. If you're in the public school, your children, you need to understand that this is not a safe place for your children. And I know many times you may not have other options. If you're looking for options, can you please see Landon? Uh, I think he, he could help you with, with whether it's private school or, or public school or homeschool. Some ways, give us, I can help you. We try to find some different avenues for you. But I want to share with you, your children are not in a safe place. California is not becoming a safe place for a Christian. I myself could be in trouble if I biblically counsel someone with gender dysphoria and if I don't affirm what they believe. For emphasis, Jesus declares in verse 17 that we're going to be hated by all for my name's sake. Don't be surprised if your neighbors don't want anything to do with you. If your employees don't want you to read the Bible. If people struggle when you just say amen or praise God or can I pray for you? Because we will suffer. The Bible says if you do suffer, you will be glorified. But don't suffer for being an evildoer in 1 Peter. But recognize that you will suffer for my name's sake and count it all joy when you do. Now, these five warnings and predictions must have silenced the disciples. This was not the answer they were looking for. Just tell us when this is happening and how can we know when it's about to happen? And Jesus gives them these five dire warnings and predictions that are very overwhelming if we truly think about it. And some of it's hard for us because we live in such a, up until now, we have lived in such a bubble as Christians, we've lived in what's called a, the, the one man puts it this way, we, the, the, speaking mainly of the Western world, okay, the sake of America, where Christianity at first was a positive event, where everyone went to church. I was talking to pastors the other day, and I was saying, you know what, when I talk to people and, I, and I'm preaching, and if I say, hey, and, and remember the story about David and Goliath? 
There was a time where everyone, whether they went to church or not or was a Christian, they would know that story. But today I can't take that for granted. Because it's not, it's not, it's not accurate that kids, everyone goes to VBS or goes, knows those stories. So we have to kind of understand that they don't know the lingo. He says, then the world turned to a neutral. You can be a Christian, but it's neither positive or negative. It's okay. Live and let live. But now, he says, since probably, mainly since Oberfell, so maybe the last 10 years, we now live in a negative world when it comes to the form of Christianity. So in other words, now Christianity, being a Christian, is not something that's looked on as either neutral or positive. You're a bigot. You're a misogynist. You're a Nazi. Right? All those things is now if you're a Christian. Now, maybe not to all degrees, but if you watch media, and if you watch how people are responding, you and I are more and more living in a very negative world when it comes to our faith. The world is hostile to our faith. Some of us just have not gotten the memo. But we need to understand it. Now, that doesn't mean that we come out combating, that we come out fighting, because this is what we're going to understand. So what do we do about this? How do we understand what Jesus is telling us here? Instead of satisfying the disciples' curiosity, I think Jesus' answers actually prompted more questions, at least it does in my mind. And he isn't even done yet, as we see next week. He's got some more things that he's going to give them some predictions and warnings about. Yet you and I have enough here this morning to contemplate, to consider, and to clarify what was Jesus meaning when he gave him this answer. How can Jesus, though, predict the future? That's the question we might ask. That might have disciples says, how does Jesus really know this? How does he know these things are actually going to happen? Now, you and I can look back into history and see how some of that has, we can see historically most of those things have happened. But they hadn't. Now, you and I might be looking and say, well, I don't see a betrayal by my family or by my friends. I don't see how that, I don't see the government coming down on us. So we, we say, how does Jesus know these things? How can I trust it? What assurances do we have? Is, is Jesus just like the climate change? Is he being an alarmist? Is he trying to manipulate us into doing what he wants us to do? What I want to share and what I want to spend our time here is that unlike other false prophets and messiahs and predictors and astrologers who try and predict the future, you and I can rest assured that Jesus here knows what he is talking about. It is prudent and it is commanded that you and I listen to his answer and learn what he means. So, for the rest of this message, I want to share with you three reasons Jesus can be trusted. Three reasons why Jesus can predict the future. How we can know, not only has this happened in the past, the disciples' future, but our past, how can you and I be assured that this is what you and I will face and not lose hope when the suffering comes? Number one, Jesus can predict the future because he is God. Amen. You did it with Lewis, man. I know you can say amen because I know you did it with Lewis. But Jesus can predict the future because he knows because he is God. Luke has spent much of his writing proving that Jesus is God. He began the gospel by recording the eyewitness accounts of his birth, his baptism, his miracles, his teaching, and his life that proved that Jesus is no ordinary man or religious leader. You might recall that Luke has written of the angel Gabriel who approached Mary before she was with birth and proclaimed that you will bear a son. It says he will be like great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of uh, Jacob forever in his kingdom. There will be no end. Or of Jesus' aunt Elizabeth who is claimed of Jesus after visiting Mary when Mary was pregnant, said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it that he has granted me the mother of my Lord should come to me now? 
the angels who sang to the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, or the testimony of the Father himself, Yahweh. At Jesus' baptism, you are my blessed son, my beloved son, whom I well pleased. If you won't hear him, then hear the words of the devil, of the demons, who said, you are the son of God. Of course, you and I, we can go back and read all the eyewitness testimonies of his miracles, his power over the natural and the supernatural world, or his power over sickness, illness, and even death, diseases. Luke has laid down the proper groundwork for us to declare, along with Peter, who boldly pronounced that Jesus is the Christ of God. So you and I, after two, we started this in actually uh, uh, fall, I think, or Christmas around 2022. So we've been in this almost three years at least. You and I have done the groundwork. Jesus is God. And he can be the future because he is God. Who do you say Jesus is? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, writes, I am here trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people most often say about Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't expect, accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing, he writes, we must not say. And I believe I have this one here on the monitor. He says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. So we need to understand that Jesus, if he is just a moral teacher, then he is actually a liar if he is not Lord. He goes on to write, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. He's a David Koresh. He's a Jim Jones. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. I pray that you do so this morning. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend. So who is Jesus? Your eternity rests on that answer. And if you answer that Jesus is Lord, be rest assured that his predictions and warnings will come true. You will suffer persecution. You will suffer betrayal. Number two, building upon that, if Jesus is God, Jesus can predict the future because as God, God has decreed all that will take place. And this is something that we, you and I, need to understand. As God, he has decreed all that will take place. By this, I mean that Jesus knows what the future holds, not because he can look down to the pages of time and say, oh, that's what happens. Now I know. So it's not like Jesus has, has advanced information. He has a good source. He has a CI that tells him everything that's going to happen. But everything that happens has been decreed by him. Before the foundation of the world, he said, let there be. And this is what being is. You and I are living in the be, so to speak. This is what God has decreed. That means there are no accidents. There are no coincidences. Wayne Grumman points out when we think of God's providence, when that he has decreed it all place. He says that God is continually involved with creation in all ways. And understand this, God, as we were reading from our passage earlier this morning, uh, that Landon read, is God is continually, Jesus is continually involved in this world in that he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. In other words, gravity is only work because Jesus is saying work. You and I, and every time that our heart beats, he is saying pump. 
When you breathe in air, he is saying, breathe. All it takes is for Jesus to take his hand away or to be silent, so to speak. And we expire. All goes floating up. The laws of nature, what you and I call science, is just the working of Christ in this world. So we need to understand that. Not only that, as he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Why does a tornado or a hurricane or whatever, why does it work in this such way? And we say, well, it's the wind patterns. It's the cooling of the ocean. It's the warming of the ocean. It's this or that. No, it's God who says, take a right here. Take a left here. This is what is happening. You and I think of forest fires because we have many of them here. And praise God, we have not had as much as we normally have, would have. And we think, who started that fire? Maybe it's a careless camper. Maybe it's the car that backfired by the desert and did it. Maybe it's a kid shooting a firework. And those are all all true. But in the end, it's God who said, start. That can be a tough, tough thing to understand. But God works all things for his purpose. And that's the third one. He directs them to fulfill his purpose. Hence, when he says that there's going to be famines, there's going to be droughts, there's going to be this, there's going to be that, they serve the purposes of God, and God is moving them at all points. Several scriptures, excuse me, inform us that all that God decrees will come to pass exactly as he has planned. Look at these two verses up here. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart uh, to all generation. Isaiah 46, I believe. He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient things, things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. We can trust the words and take those into caution. Listen, yield to his word because he has decreed that it will happen. In Isaiah 14, he says, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purpose, so shall it stand. In other words, these warnings and predictions of Jesus are not speculations. They are not suspicions or stabs in the dark. They are a surety. It will come to pass. We want, may want to ignore them. We may want to reject them, argue against them. But to no avail, we cannot escape that which God has decreed will happen. The disciples may want to prevent it. Maybe. Maybe that's why they wanted to know. Maybe they want to see the times and just prevent it from happening. But Jesus is saying, no, this will happen. Number three, Jesus can predict the future and decrees all things because all that takes place, all that he decrees to happen, glorifies God and is for our good. This is where we place our faith and hope. So this is where you and I, once we hit those first two, those are really difficult to understand. But this is where we now need to park our car, so to speak, park our hearts. This is our hope. By faith, I mean that we can confidently trust in the person of God that he is wise and he is just and he is righteous. He is not capricious. He is not evil. He is not mean-spirited. So whatever happens that causes suffering or any evil that might transpire in this world is not something that God is saying, I'm just trying to hurt you. When I talk about hope, I mean that we can confidently expect that God will fulfill his promises. And Isaiah, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Everything that I do is for my glory. Even the salvation of our souls is for his glory. The Apostle Paul encourages the believers of Rome, at the time was ruled by a very wicked and evil king named, named, named Nero. He says that we know that, that to those who love God, all things work for good and for his purposes. The storyline of the Bible reveals God's wonderful plan to redeem his children and creation from the curse of sin and death. 
This includes the salvation of his chosen children that culminates with an earthly kingdom where Christ will one day rule in person. So what we're hearing today is some of the very negatives. You and I, soon as we go into next week, we're going to see some, some more negative things that are happening, but we'll also see something wonderful as we go on to the storyline of the Bible. So Jesus is God. Everything that God decrees will come to pass, and everything that comes to pass that God has decreed is for his glory and his good. You and I need more faith, and hope. That's what Jesus is calling the disciples to. Remember, he's just a few short days from being on the cross. They are all going to scatter until he brings them back. He's preparing them. Have faith and then have hope in times of suffering, in times of evil, for I am with you. So what do you and I do with these warnings and predictions? How do they affect us today? Because many of them have gone, have already happened. Some are still, we're living in it, and some is in the future. Are these warnings and predictions, someone might ask, even for us? The temple is destroyed. The, the, walls, of, uh, Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem fell as well. Then we might think, well, maybe, maybe there's some that's still in the future. Maybe the betrayal, maybe the persecution is still in the future. I don't have to worry about that today. Do I need to even be concerned? And these are all good questions. These predictions and warnings are not meant to frighten the disciples or are not meant to frighten the disciples or us today, but to help us in our quest to fulfill the mission of God. Jesus Christ knew that very quickly many would turn against him and that there would be those who would confess him and be Messiah who would then fail to take up the cross deny themselves and follow him. And so in the same way, these words are an encourage us is for you and I to stay steady. Do not fail. Do not forsake when suffering and trials come. People will fall away because of deception. We have many that have come into this church and then they wind up leaving for other pastors or preachers that itch, the, you know, itch their ears or just because of the world, the allure of the world. Some will leave because of persecution or even a lack of love for Christ and his word. So how do you and I guard against this satanic attack of this evil that's pervasing or pervasive in this world? Simply, I'm going to give you some reasons, real seven of them real quickly, is that you and I are to follow the examples of Christ and the disciples as they lived out these words of Christ after these warnings. There's seven. Very simple. One, they're all P's. I'm still kind of a Baptist, so I alliterate everything. I don't know if you noticed that in my message. If I start one phrase with one word, all the words are going to be that. By the way, I want to just thank God for a thesaurus, greatest tool in the world. First is prepare. In verse 8, Jesus warns his disciples, see that you are not led astray. He does not want them to be distracted from the mission to make disciples. Preparation is why he is informing them of the future. Many will think ignorance is bliss. Just don't tell me if I have a disease. Don't tell me if things are going bad. Just let me live my life and things are fine. But like the wise man who prepares for the storm, you and I are to understand the times and to be ready when these days come upon us? Are you prepared for the persecution? Are you prepared for the famine, the betrayals? Are you prepared? Number two, peace. We need to be at peace, not filled with worry or anxiety over another alarmist, another COVID variant, another war. Who's going to be the next president? We're not to be worried or anxiety, uh, feel anxious about the future. Jesus encouraged them not to be terrified when they hear the conflicts and calamities. They are just birth pains. Instead, the word of God promises that the peace of God, who surpasses all understanding, will keep on guard our hearts and minds in Christ. I can be at peace, for God is still in control. Number three, proclaim. Proclaim. 
In Acts chapter 4, we're going to see here, he says that, uh, going on back to, it says, Jesus says, you will suffer persecution. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. We don't have time. I went a little longer, but just write down in your notes, if you're writing notes or in your Bible, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 7. We see very quickly, shortly after Jesus' ascension to heaven, the disciples, Peter, John, are preaching the gospel. They're dragged into court. They're beaten, they're arrested. But yet, what do they do? They stand up and they say, do not preach about the way, about Christ. And they said, we will obey God rather than man. You and I need to proclaim. When you and I are suffering, we're suffering betrayal, we're suffering. It's our time, it's our opportunity to proclaim No, Christ is in control. It's our time to proclaim the gospel. He says in Luke chapter 21, he says, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate before or how to answer. But he says he'll give us wisdom. That comes from those who read God's word, apply God's word. And when that time comes, when says, give me the reason for the hope within you, we're able to boldly stand like Peter and Paul and John and say that Jesus is king. Number four, persevere. He says in Luke 21, 19, that by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Do not give up. Do not, uh, do not walk away. Be distracted from your mission. Remember, you have a quest. You need to fulfill it. We're not to walk away from the faith, but we are to persevere. For by that, Jesus had said, whoever seeks to preserve his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Brothers and sisters, we must persevere in all of our sufferings, for it serves a purpose. Number five is purification. In James, he says, count it all joy when you find yourselves in various trials. For this suffering produces endurance, and this endurance produces steadfastness. <clears throat> we need to understand that the evils and the sufferings that you and I struggle with is to purify us like you would purify precious metals, gold, jewels. As you burn it in fire, you melt out the impurities and what you have is something pure. That's what Christ is doing with you today. Suffering is the crucible that breaks and molds us into the image of Christ. Sanctification is a lifelong process where God makes us freer from sin and more like his son. It is difficult, it is painful, and many times unpleasant, but it reaps great rewards. Number six, we're almost done is a promise. So that is the question. Why should I do these things? These things are not fun. These things are hard. They are difficult. But Jesus says, I've given you a promise. We go to great lengths to put off, dodge, deflect, and divert all sorts of suffering and pain. But yet we live in a world full of pain. But in Luke 21, 18, he says, not a hair of your head will perish. Of course, we know that many have lost life, limb, and liberty for their professional faith. So how can he say not a hair of your head will be harmed? Well, Jesus is not promising here physical, mental, emotional, relational, no relational harm, but that all suffering that you and I struggle with here and have to endure on this earth is temporary. In the kingdom of God, we will all be restored. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur writes that this was not a promise for preservation, uh, preservation of their physical lives, but in guarantee that they would suffer no eternal loss. God himself sovereignly preserves his own. So when we're undergoing betrayal, when we're undergoing a suffering, when we're undergoing anxiety and things of that nature, we need to look to the promises of God who loves us and cares for us. And lastly, is promotion. Is promotion. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. We have to remember those great things. That God says this world is not your home. 
Paul writes, do you not know that a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? Every athlete exercises self-control. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. In those days, it was like the Olympics. When they won, they won an olive branch around their head. What happened to it? It died. After a day or two, it's cut off. You might get a gold medal here in, in the Olympics today, but that can be stolen, be sold, you'll be lost. But God says, what I have for you cannot be lost. The Apostle John, while exiled to the island of Patmos, after being boiled in oil, received this great vision. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. In summary, Jesus warns his disciples not to cause panic. Or he warns his disciples not to cause panic in their lives or to induce fear or even to drive them away, but to strengthen them for what lies ahead. And so for you and I, the word today should strengthen us. Next week, we're going to read the rest of his warnings and predictions. But let us end today by saying, let us commit to applying these seven steps that we may glorify God in this life. Let us do these things that God may be glorified and for our good. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come on up and Randy. Just real quickly, would you just bow your head and close your eyes just for a quick moment so that we can pause and consider these words. I've given you a lot of information. I gave you really quickly. So I pray that you take some notes and you just pray this week. How should I respond to these warnings and predictions? Am I filled with anxieties, concerns, and worries because all the evil and suffering that I see in the world? Do I question where is God? Find your hope and your faith in the God who has called us to prepare, to proclaim, to be ready for his glory, our good. So when that time does come, that we are ready to serve our master as he has called us to do. Randy, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.